I've got one and a half chapters, quite a long reading there, a lot to take in. And uh, it'd be helpful, really, if you can all find your, your Bible. So I'm not going to go through all of that, but there's some really uh, key things from it, which I think would be great if we can look at together. So it's on page 1145, and there should be a, a Bible close to you. And um, we'll look particularly at the top of page 1145, and look at um, the text I want to take from verse 23, which is the uh, fourth line down, at the top of page 1145. And just five words, the beginning of verse 23. Have you all got it? Because we're going to say it together in a minute. I'll say what it is first, so you know you've got the right ones. It says, But we preach Christ crucified. You all got it? Five words, let's say it. But we preach Christ crucified. No, we don't. I was very tempted to, uh, to disappear at that point, to leave, it, leave the sermon at that, because I think it makes the point. Do we really preach Christ crucified? Let's unpack what that sort of means, and then perhaps as we go through it, we can say whether that's true or not. How much of our preaching is really centred on the cross? Satan, sin, death, hell. Not popular sermon topics, are they? Don't often get the teaching on that. Let's uh, rush on to the resurrection. That's more. Um, that's a bit more, um, you know, with it really. That's a bit appeal to people today, won't it? But first, let's have a quick recap. Last Sunday, John started our new series on the first letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. So we've already had those eight verses which he used in chapter 1. The church there was in a mess. It was a messy church. And Paul had a tough task when he went there. And it says he went there in weakness and fear and with much trembling. We are a messy church. We preach Christ crucified. What I'm going to do this morning. <laughs> and I feel a bit like Paul, weak, afraid and tre- trembling. I wonder what message Paul would take to Corinth, or rather what message would Christ give Paul to take to that church. Last verse that John spoke on, verse 17, chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now that verse is like a lead-in verse to the whole of this next one and a half chapters that I'm talking about this morning. Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the text this morning, we preach Christ crucified. The primary calling of Paul is not performing baptisms, christenings, important as they may be, it's not doing weddings, it's not funerals and so on. I believe that the primary function of any church is not all those sort of functions like that. The primary function, important as they may be, 
in our messy church here in Aldridge is to preach the gospel. The good news of Jesus, the good news of Christ crucified. So, let's look a little bit at those five words. It says, first of all, it says, but. Now, but is an important word. It's like, shows a contrast between one way and a different way. But, alright, so if you look in these chapters, I mean, if you wanted to, you could count them all up. I think there's at least 12 in this passage we're looking at. But, we're not going to pick them all out. But really the main thing is that here, this but, it's a contrast between two groups of people. Verse 18 sums it up. That's the first verse. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now we don't live in a classless society. I think you probably all agree on that. um, In God's eyes, I believe there are really only two classes of people. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved, as it puts it in this verse 18. Either we are in the world or we are in Christ Jesus. That's the two classes of people in God's eyes. Those are the two and the only two. So that's the first word. Second word, but we. Up till now, Paul has been, it's been talking about himself. I, me. Now it changes and it becomes we and us. It's a team. It's not just Paul on his own. He's gone in with a team of evangelists into this church at Corinth. He's not working on his own now. It's, um, it's many, many people together. Third word, preach. But we preach. Now it's not just John last week, me today, or Nigel next week. It's all those who accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour. All those whom God has called. Now that doesn't mean that next week or the week after we could call any of you necessarily and okay, it's your turn, you can come and have a go at preaching for the pulpit. It doesn't work like that. Because you may feel that God hasn't actually called you to be a preacher. You need to really test that out and see whether that's true, in that sense. But, you can still preach. Because I believe that the word preach, if we take it really in its wider sense, is whenever we tell somebody the good news, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, we take that message to a non-believer, we are preaching. We may not realising it, but we're preaching by our lives, by our actions and so on. We are all called to be preachers in that way. Particularly when you tell them how you became a Christian. That is such a powerful way of witnessing. So my words, my testimony, my actions can be a strong message wherever God takes me. Wherever you go in the world, you can be a preacher. You can be telling people the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth word, Christ. Now the term Christ is a title. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament term Messiah. It means the anointed one. Jesus is the only one who delivers people from their sin. Jesus alone is the Christ. So we can have the second uh, slide up. (coughs) 
crucified, the fifth word. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the picture of the stained glass window. Such a powerful image that we can look at week by week when we come in here. What a gruesome form of death. It's even got its own special word to go with it. When something is really, really painful, we say it's excruciating. And the word excruciating means out of the cross. So the pain that the Lord Jesus went through for us, suffering there, is the most excruciating sort of pain, really, that you can think of. Yet Jesus willingly went through that for me and for you, for our salvation and for the salvation of all those who turn to him. Jesus, who knew no sin, bore the sin of the whole world in an act of supreme love when he was nailed to the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But we preach Christ crucified. That's your text. And it comes in in the passage in other places as well. Look at verse 18. It talks about the message of the cross. Chapter 2, verse 2. I resolved not to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now what a strange message to take to Corinth. This city with its very strategic position, this city full of rich, successful, important people, movers and shakers, religious leaders, great thinkers, idol worshippers, prostitutes, they're all there in that city. But that's the message. And how desperately our messy church, our messy town, our messy country and our messy world need that message today. We preach Christ crucified. Now, verse 22. It says, The Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And this packed it out, unpacked it over quite a long time in the, in the whole of the verses. But let's think about this verse. Jews demand miraculous signs. There it is on the table. You're probably all wondering what it's there for. Now, the Jews, something like that, they would say, okay, Let's have a miraculous sign. Perhaps that water could be turned into wine. (laughs) That was the sort of miraculous sign that Jesus had already done. That had happened. There'd been all sorts of signs and wonders that'd be going along, but that's what they still want. They want to see miraculous signs. That's the way their sort of mind worked. Their whole history had been one of miraculous signs. A miracle right from the very beginning. If you go back to the story of Abraham and uh, Sarah, I think there were a hundred. Abraham was about a hundred and Sarah was ninety when they said you're going to have a child. It was a miracle when Isaac was born, wasn't it? That was right from the very beginning. The whole history of the Jewish nation has been a miracle. We can read about it, the parting of the, of the Red Sea. They're all the way through. Go through your Bible. Find the number of miracles they've had. They've had the example of Jesus. They've had all that in front of them, all the miracles that Jesus did. And they still want more miraculous signs. Now, miraculous signs and wonders on their own, they're not what convert people. 
If we look in, in Revelation, it, it talks in chapter 9 about locusts, horrible locusts with stings like scorpions. They're released on the earth, followed by plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur. And it says the people still do not repent. That didn't change them. They didn't change from their wicked ways. It said they did not stop worshipping demons and idols, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. That didn't change them. They carried on. So the Jews were looking for power and great glory in their Messiah. And so the Jews stumbled at the cross. The cross was too not the sort of message they wanted at all. How could anybody put their faith in a carpenter from Nazareth, tiny little place, not important place, not an important, well, it is an important job, carpenter, I don't want to pay anybody down, but you know, get the impression, that's not sort of one of the high and mighty of the world, who died a shameful death of a common criminal, the worst sort of death that they could imagine. How could that be right? So, that's it. That's what the Jews trusted. They wanted signs and wonders. But the Greeks trusted the great philosophers with their profound thinking. Now, we've got somebody with very profound thinking today. He's got some incredibly important books, which is John Craddock. And he's going to bring one or two of them out for us to show us. So, uh, we're going to have them on the table at the front here, John, if you don't mind. But the first one is Plato, the Republic. All right, anybody read that? No. Nobody, one, perhaps one or two hands, no, no, nobody, nobody even looked at it. Well, that was the sort of book, that was 400 BC roughly, I think, the f- sort of book that they, the Greeks would have been looking at. The next one along is uh, Aristotle, the title Metaphysics, all right, really interesting, riveting stuff. How many of you read that one? Oh yeah, we've got somebody who's read that. Okay, one or two read that. They got into that. And that was about 300 BC, I think, if, roughly. Okay. And then the other ones are more modern. But these are some of the great thinkers, that the, the first two, that the Greeks um, would have been looking to. That's the sort of wisdom they relied on. And then you've got the next one in. After that, I've put on uh, Descartes in the 17th century. Moved right forward. You remember famous thing he said, I think, therefore I am. And that was one of his most famous sort of things you might have heard of before. I can't remember it in Latin now, but there it is. And then you had Kant in the 18th century. We haven't got Darwin, the origin of species, but we, that was another one. But we've got Bertrand Russell, the one on this end here, another great sort of thinker. But you know what he said? came to the end, uh, all the sort of thing he said, he said, religion is something left over from the infancy of our intelligence. In other words, when we grow up, when we get wise, we will get rid of religion, it will have no more bearing on us. It will fade away as we adopt reason and science as our guidelines. We're very clever people, we've moved on, we don't need that anymore really. Now let's move right up to date. This week, space scientists are talking about they're going to be reaching for the stars. Stephen Hawking said it's about humanity fulfilling its destiny. And the Russian billionaire funding the project to reach the stars says we might actually expand the boundaries of human knowledge. Wow. 
So reminds me of the Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. But what about trying to solve the heart of man's problem? The problem of man's heart? What about that? Isn't that more important? When we can still kill people just because they don't follow our religion. They believe something different to us. And how many people today still laugh at the cross? Now I saw some pretty awful comments when I started looking through to see what sort of things people say today. This is one of the better ones of them. I don't, didn't want the ones with any uh, bad languages or anything. But how can we not ridicule those who believe in the equivalent of Santa Claus? That's the sort of comment that we've got in our society today. That's what many, many people will think. Richard Dawkins, you've probably all heard of in The God Delusion, argues that belief in a supernatural creator is irrational and actually harmful to society. Postmodernism, I don't know a lot about it, but I believe that it refuses to accept any absolute source for truth and reality. I believe Paul was really asking these wise people who've got all this knowledge, they've read all these books and so on, and everything like that, so, so wise people. In all your studies into these great ideas, these works of great wisdom, if you're looking at them, have these actually led you to know God in a personal way? For today's so-called wise men and women, It's a real problem that people still believe in God. We should have grown up from that. Like Bertrand Russell said, we got beyond that, we got too intelligent now. And for these wise people, the problem is even worse when Christians state that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. How can we possibly believe something like that? Isn't that so arrogant, they will say. almost intolerant of anybody else. So we have to be very clear and simple about the message of the cross. And that's why your personal testimony, what you say has happened to you, is so important when you're talking with these clever people. All I know is that the Lord has spoken to me, the Lord has called me. I've realised I need to come to the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I believe that I've met the Lord Jesus Christ. He has spoken to me. It's a bit like Well, Paul's personal testimony was incredibly powerful because that happened to him. The Lord spoke to him, didn't he? And he was able to say, once I was blind, he'd been out there persecuting the Christians. But he met the Lord. Once I was blind, now I can see. That is the powerful message. So when Paul came into this pagan city that prided itself on his intellectual and cultural life and stood up to speak about Jesus Christ, he knew what people would think. This was and is the craziest message anybody could imagine. This was not a smart new philosophy. It was madness. It was not an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. So the Jews stumbled at the cross. The Greeks laughed at the cross. What about you and me? How are we going to respond? Look at verse 27, another but. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
Uh, one day a Scottish minister gave a tract to an important society lady. She was greatly offended. Sir, she said, you obviously don't know who I am. And he said, Madam, a day of judgment is coming and on that day it won't matter who you are. God chose the foolish, the weak, the poor and the despised to show the proud world their need for God's grace. And God still chooses the weak of this world to shame the mighty. The world admires power, social standing, celebrities, rich people. None of these lead to salvation and eternal life. PowerPoint 3. The cross is the only way we can move from being in the world to being in Christ. That is the only way. I don't know whether you can see, but on the left, it's showing sort of barrenness, and that's our lives while we're in the world. When we move and walk across and we go through and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, we can go across that mighty chasm and we can move into knowing that we are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can think of nothing weaker than a dying person hanging on a cross. Am I really saying that Jesus dying on a cross, naked, humiliated, scoffed, is God's way of salvation? That's the only way of salvation. That's the turning point of all history. Surely I must be joking. But no, that's what I believe. And that's what millions of Christians believe from all parts of the world. Lives can be turned round. Lives are being turned round because of the cross. Situations are being changed. Communities are being transformed. All because of the power of the cross. And now a comment about boasting. So, this idea that arrogance and so on, I think, knocks it on the head. Verse 31, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's nothing about what we have done. It's all about Jesus. There's a lovely cross-reference to Jeremiah, which we looked at when we had a recent prayer evening. Jeremiah chapter 9. Look it up when you get home. It's verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That's what we should be boasting in. I understand and know Jesus, I've met him personally, he has spoken to me personally. That's what it's all about. Now that Jeremiah one was written 2,500 years ago. It's so relevant even today. Our wisdom, our strength, our money do not lead to our salvation. The whole section is summed up in the last words of verse 5 in chapter 2. Your faith, our faith, does not rest on man's wisdom but on God's power. There's the contrast. The contrast between men's wisdom and God's power. And chapter 2, really, the rest of it sort of goes through and tells you where it all comes from. Where did that power come from? I haven't got time to go through it in great deal this morning, but very quickly, it says, chapter 2, verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, 70 years ago, William Barclay wrote, The person without the Spirit lives as if there is nothing beyond the physical life, and there are no other needs other than material needs. Nothing is more important than the satisfaction of the sex urge 
And such a person cannot understand the meaning of chastity and cannot understand the things of God. Not much has changed. We need the power of the cross to transform us. So that's the theme of the rest of chapter 2. Because it's all to do with the power which comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, God revealed it to us by Spirit. Verse 10 again, the Spirit searches all things. Verse 11, the Spirit of God. Verse 12, the Spirit who is from God. Verse 13, words taught by the Spirit. Word and Spirit together are very powerful. Word on its own, studies of those books and all the rest, lead to dryness. Alright? Too much, I think, the other way, all spirit leads to sort of froth, if I put it like that. There's got to be a balance between the two. The balance between God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, the two going together. In conclusion now, coming towards the end now, so sorry, a bit uh, bit long this morning, but today people confuse being a Christian with being good, trying hard, not hurting anybody. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. All those other ideas that people come out with. And that awful comment, I do my best, as though that will earn salvation. That's the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing that people uh, believe being a Christian is, is really about. Becoming a Christian is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's entirely through God's grace. In Isaiah chapter 64, God's word tells us that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All those good deeds we think we're doing, they're all like righteous, uh, sorry, all like filthy rags. If we're not doing them in the power of the Spirit, if we're not doing it as Christians really working out our Christian faith in the tough times in which we live. So becoming a Christian means coming to the cross and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've messed up. I've got things wrong. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, the thief on the next cross said to him, Lord, remember me. And you know, Jesus didn't reply, you've left it very late in life. (laughs) He didn't reply, you've never been to church, you can't get to heaven. He didn't reply, You've never been baptised or confirmed or even been to human holy communion. As though any of those were the entrance to heaven. The thief said, Lord, remember me. And Jesus replied, Today you will be with me in paradise. However long the Lord allows us to live on earth, the great crunch problem is on its way for all of us and we can never avoid it. That's our death. We're going to die and Jesus Christ is the only way that we can face death with the hope, the certainty of eternity with him. Safe forever as the children of God. Praise and thank God for the cross. In a moment we sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and I'd like to all consider our response. If you feel God's been speaking to you this morning, you need to make a response. I've got two things here which will help you. The first is a small card. So, PowerPoint 4, I think it's on the PowerPoint there. Because I've changed it slightly. Instead of we preach crucified, 
Christ crucified, I've just put, I preach Christ. Whenever I go out, whenever I witness for him, in any way. I preach Christ. And it isn't just crucified, because the whole thing, really, and Paul unpacks that as we go through Corinthians, um, lead us on as we go through, he preaches Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and returning. That's what we believe. We believe that despite all the messy world that we live in at the moment, that Jesus is reigning in heaven, that he is in control of the world. And we believe that one day, and I don't believe that day is that far ahead, one day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. That's what we believe. Lord, please help me. So if you want, what I'm suggesting is, if I'll have these little cards, there's quite a few here, if you want to come out when we're singing that hymn, just come and collect one of those. And if you want to go through the prayer ministry, that will be through in the, in the vestry and that will start sort of as soon as we start singing. And uh, you can use this as just a little memory jogger. I'm going to start witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. What a tr- difference that would make. 200 of us went out and did that. We would be mocked. We would find it tough. But there would be those who listen to the message and those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the other one. If you believe the Lord's been speaking today, you never committed your life to him, this little booklet will help. It's just called Why Jesus. It explains in simple terms how we can move from being in the world to being in Jesus. All we need to do, and we have PowerPoint 5, we'll go back to that one before. All we need to do is we come to the cross, we say a short prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you may want to do that. You may want to come up to this cross this morning and do that. And if you want to speak with somebody, speak with one of the leaders of the church, they will show you and be able to talk you through what it means to really give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, a moment of stillness and quiet. Perhaps if we can clear the clutter out of the way of the cross, so many things interfere, don't they? If we can move the table and put it at the side, then if you want to come out, I'll put the little cards on the table at the side and you may want to just come and say a prayer at the cross as we sing this hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it talks about nothing in my hand I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. That's another hymn. It's a lovely, lovely thought though. Nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing we can do. We just come and we say and we cling to the cross and we ask for the Lord to forgive us and help us in our Christian life. And a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just pray now that you will help us as we each consider the response we make as you speak and have uh, spoken to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.